Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to today's Live Inspired podcast episode. So glad that you're here with me today, and I'd love to stay connected with you all week long. Could you use a little inspiration beyond just this podcast? If you could, I hope you can, connect with me. I'm very active on social media, sharing positive, actionable thoughts and videos and posts about what could be inspiring to you right this moment. So find me on Facebook by searching John O'Leary Live Inspired. My Instagram handle is johnoleary.inspires. Or if you're hanging out on Twitter, the handle there is at jolearyinspires. Anywhere that you are on social media, we are hanging out as well. And we are sharing news that is elevating for you in your work, in your relationships, and in your life. I'm looking forward to seeing you there. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, thank you, Joe Buck, and hello, my friends. Welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. January 17th, 1987, that's my date. That's the date that a little boy went into a garage, went toward his parents' five-gallon can of gasoline, lit a piece of cardboard on fire, bent down next to it, and the result was a massive explosion that changed everything for the rest of my life. So that's my date, January 17th, 1987. What's the date as you look back at your own life that changed everything in your journey? What's the date that maybe you lost something or someone incredibly close to you, or maybe you lost something incredibly valuable to you? Well, for our guests today, their names are Mike and Sarah Flamian. Their date is July 8th, 2016. It's a date that robbed from them so much of maybe what they took for granted before it. It's a date that changed the arc of their marriage, the arc of their health, the arc of their professional life, and the arc of their journey going forward. It's a date that brought them to their knees and almost killed them. And yet today, they're still here. They're still smiling. I asked them as they came in today, How, how's your day going? And Mike's response, it was sunny outside. Day's going awesome. My friends, these, these friends of mine are heroes of mine. They don't know that yet, but they are people in our community here in St. Louis and beyond that we look up to as someone to be modeled. That date is something that has inspired us to recognize the gift of our servants, the, the risk that they take each and every day in their professional lives, and the truth that we can lose almost everything, but as long as we have breath in our lungs, we are still here to fight for it another day. They are exhibits A and B of this. So today on our Live Inspired podcast, you are in for a treat as you hear the story, the journey, the life, the joy of my newest friends, Sarah and Mike Flamian. Sarah and Mike, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for having us. Man, it is like, I don't get nervous in interviews. We've done some pretty big interviews with some pretty big folks, including Gary Sinise, Lieutenant Dan. We'll come back to him in a moment because he had a direct impact on your journey. We've met some really cool, big, top-notch talent, and I don't get nervous. I am nervous as can be right now, seated across from both of you, and we'll, we'll unpack why that is. But for our, um, our listeners today, rather than talking about that date, Let's go back a few dates before that. I'd like to hear when you met each other, each other for the very first time. Sarah, when was the very first time you laid eyes on Brother Mike? 
his best friend is married to my best friend. So when they first started dating, we kind of saw each other off and on. It was kind of casual, said hi, um, nothing nothing too serious. And then several years later when they were getting married and we were both in the wedding, we kind of started talking a little bit more mm-hmm. and then started talking a little bit more than that. And then a few months after that, we started dating. We'd known each other for a while. There wasn't really like a right. love at first sight type of moment. You know, it was just sort of, we never had really talked to each other like in depth until we were kind of in the same place for several days in a row where we got to get to know each other a little bit better. Yeah, that, that, that can be a very cool way to do it. I, I, I frequently say it wears, it's like erosion. It may wear slow, but it wears true. And sometimes that's how love ought to develop. That's certainly been the case for my wife and me. Mike, when you eventually pivoted into uh, this distant friend, this girl on the periphery into a girl that you spent a couple days with and got to know a little bit better, what was it about Sarah that you began falling for? Just her personality. She was so much fun to hang out with and uh, just easy to talk to. So, and then every, like she said, our friends are married. So we all just hung out together all the time. And uh, as she said, you know, we just kind of progressively started hanging out more and more and that the personality of hers just is incredible. So that's that's, awesome. uh, Yeah. And, and Sarah, for you, as you fell in love with Mike, what was it about our friend? Um, it was the same. You know, he made me laugh a lot. That's kind of one of my big things. I love somebody who's funny. And, you know, we realized that personality-wise and sense of humor-wise, we were very similar. So it was funny within, you know, just a few weeks, we would, like, say the same thing about something, and then we would just crack up laughing. You know, it was just, it just sort of worked. Like, we just sort of clicked right away as soon as we started hanging out. About what year are we talking about? When did you start hanging out, in quotes? Uh, 2012? Yeah, probably around there. So we'll, we'll go forward from that date, assuming that that's the inflection point when you start actually <laughs> hanging out together more uh, intimately and more passionately. Before that, though, Mike, you choose law enforcement as your profession. Right. Talk about that. Why, why did a, a, a kid choose law enforcement? You know, it was, um, it was a couple things. The thought of being able to help and give back to my community, but also I think the adrenaline rush that um, that you could get from that, you know, just the excitement that every day wasn't going to be the same. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd never really had the desire to go sit in front of a keyboard in an office all day. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed being outside, whether it was raining or, or snowing or it was a sunny day. So I think uh, just all that kind of played together. I have family that was in law enforcement and talking to them and, right. and hearing those stories. It just sounded like an incredible career. When did you graduate the academy? What year? Uh, 2006, I graduated. Okay. I started in Baldwin in uh, December of 2014. And just for our listeners tuning in from around the United States and around the world, I grew up in a little community called De Pere, but De Pere buckles up next to a community called Baldwin. So uh, Officer Fleming and I were neighbors for several years as an officer. And now as a spouse to an officer, Sarah, were you, were you concerned about the work that your husband chose as a profession? Yes and no. I I don't get worked up easily over things. So while I say that I was concerned, I knew, you know, the risks of him being a police officer, 
but I didn't let it sort of bleed into our day-to-day lives and Mm -hmm. our time together. It was sort of God has a plan and I trust God and he's going to, whatever's going to happen will happen, basically. Um, Obviously, I always wished him well, always prayed for his safety, never forgot to do those things. But, you know, it wasn't, I wasn't stressed out all the time about it. And I know some spouses are, um, you know, everybody just kind of handles things differently. Mike knows I, I just don't get stressed out very easily. I'm very much, you know, to me, to be stressed out and constantly worried to me is not trusting God. Like you've got to be able to put your life in his hands. That's the whole idea. So I just kind of pushed through. Well, and if uh, ever you were wondering, can I do this when it gets hard? You've been proving for the last three years that yes, in fact, I can. And uh, we'll get there in a moment. Mike, as you looked at your work, there's there's a certain grittiness and uh, machismo, like toughness that our first responders and the military folks seem to have as they go about their work and their lives. Um, the idea that you could get injured every day, but also this ability that uh, it's not it's not going to happen to me. All right. Tell me tell me about your own perspective around that. As you got into your patrol car day after day, did you see this as man? There is real risk out there every moment of every day. Yeah, I mean that's it's always a a thought in the back of your head. Um, you know, you make a traffic stop, you go up to a car, you don't know who's in there. You know, sometimes it's two o'clock in the morning when you go up there. Um, so you're you're never quite sure who you're making contact with. But at the same time, you don't want that to just uh, consume your everyday right. uh, routine. You know, it's there's that one bad person, but there's so many more good people out there that, um, that I was blessed and I got to meet. You know, um, when I got to Baldwin, it was nothing like where... I had come from where I worked previously. Um, it was quite a bit different. And not that the community at DeSoto, um, they were great also, but it was just so nice to meet so many people that um, that loved having us around and just wanted to stop by and say hi. You know, it was just incredible. How do you go about work and life when you're always concerned that the person you are approaching might, be looking to take your life. I mean, if in every interaction, I feel like I'm gonna be greeted with love. I really do. There's no reason for me to really believe otherwise. And for you, Mike, it's almost the exact opposite professionally. How does that impact your day? And then how does it impact you even when you punch out and go home? Uh, you know, during the day, you, like I said, you just have to keep it in your mind that not everybody's gonna hurt you. But the one guy's, you know, I've had many incidents where I've I've had issues, whether I was, somebody didn't want to go to jail or somebody was trying to take my gun or whatever. Um, But at the end of the day, when you clock out and go home, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I would, there would be mornings I would come home and Sarah knew I had a bad day and, uh, you know, she would just, typical, I love you whenever you feel like talking. I'm here for you. If you don't want to talk, that's that's fine. We can sit on the couch and watch the news or watch a TV show or whatever. Um, but usually it would take me an hour or so to unwind. And then right. you just can't let that 
take a hold of your personal life. Um, you know, I had to be there for Sarah. She was my wife, and uh, I didn't want that to bleed into our, our lives. Mm. So let's talk about the date itself. I mentioned one of mine is January 17th, 1987, a lifetime ago, but a day that certainly shaped the arc of my life for you as a couple and really for our community. Uh, July 8th, 2016, yeah. it's a date that certainly changed the two of you profoundly. Sarah, take me back to the morning of. Um, so actually the morning of, uh, we both left for work. Um, he was working a half a day. We were leaving for vacation with our friends. Um, we had debated not going to work at all, both of us, and just leaving for vacation, but decided that we didn't have to be there till that evening, so we might as well work. So I was working a whole day. He was working a half day. Um, he was going to go home and finish getting the truck packed, and then as soon as I got home, we were going to leave. Around lunchtime that day, I get a phone call from uh, one of the guys on his squad, and then I ended up talking to his sergeant, and he told me Mike was shot and that he was on his way to the hospital. And I have a medical background, so I don't think he really cared for it, but I was asking lots of questions. Where was she shot? Was he conscious? Like I wanted I wanted right. details right then. And of course, they didn't want to give me those details that, you right. know, he was shot in the neck and they right. had to do CPR and stuff. They don't want to tell me that over the phone, which I understand, but like I said, from my medical background, I wanted information. I wanted information right away. Um, luckily, I was probably maybe a quarter mile away from the hospital he was going to. Um, so my boss actually drove me there um, where I found out more details of kind of what had happened. But it's it's so surreal. Right. Like even looking back and like thinking of myself in that moment, like it still doesn't seem real. Like it still doesn't seem like that all happened. Like, yeah. it's just, it's crazy. So Sarah's learning the details of what happened to you. And Mike, you've had now a couple of years to learn the details of what happened to you right. yourself. For our listeners who don't know what happened to you, what, what happened the day of July 8th? Uh, July 8th, I made a, made a traffic stop. Um, during that traffic stop, I was shot. The bullet entered the left side of my neck, just behind my ear, um, went between my C2 and C3 vertebrae and lodged in my spine. Um, it immediately paralyzed me, causing um, my diaphragm to stop, which in turn caused me to stop breathing. Uh, I went into cardiac arrest um, by the grace of God that there was a nurse driving down the street that saw everything. And she immediately stopped and began CPR. Um, my The guys from my squad, uh, they knew that I carried a trauma kit in my car. They actually got out the quick clot out of my trauma kit and poured it on my neck, which stopped the bleeding, um, which wow. kept me from, you know, bleeding out on scene. So uh, there was just tons of things that um, happened perfectly that, I still, I'm not quite sure I understand why or how it all, it all happened, but it was the things that needed to happen happened, so. To give you the next chance to move forward. 
but it's only Absolutely. the next chance. It's it's right. not a. Right. It will be no easy journey over the next days, right. weeks, months, and even years later. Sarah, as you're learning more information, not only about what happened out there in the field and on the street, but what's happening in the hospital. What are you learning medically? Um, like he just said, I learned that the bullet was lodged in his C2 and C3 and that he was most likely paralyzed um, and most likely vent dependent. Um, you know, none of that can be confirmed until he's awake, but with the placement of the bullet, they were pretty certain that, right. you know, the spinal cord had been severely damaged. Um, and so just kind of grasping what that all meant. And then he did have a brain bleed that right. they, you know, the other next big concern was brain swelling, which he didn't have any of. The brain bleed slowed quickly and we didn't have any issues with any of that, which is amazing considering, you know, what we could have been dealing mm -hmm. with, with how high the bullet was. There is shrapnel in the back of his head. You know, the pieces of the bullet kind of went everywhere once they were, once it was in there. Um, so like he said, I mean, things, everything that needed to happen for him to survive and not have a brain injury in addition to that is, right. you know, everything kind of fell into place the way Perfectly. That it needed to. Everybody that needed to be on scene at that time was on scene. The paramedics were there within minutes. I think somebody had said that within six minutes of the call coming out, he was arriving to Mercy. Oh, my gosh. I mean, that is insane. You know, they they were quick. Everybody did exactly what they were supposed to be doing. You uh, eventually, Mike opens his eyes. He's going to speak to you. What are the first words he's shared? And then how did they make you feel? His, I mean, what he kept asking was what happened. Okay. He was intubated, so he had a tube down his throat. Right. Um, he obviously couldn't move. He couldn't figure out what was going on. He was very confused. He doesn't remember that whole day at work. So to him, all of a sudden he wakes up in the hospital and he doesn't remember being at work that day. You know, and so for the first probably a few days, um, I just told him he got hurt at work. Yeah. You know, and if he asked what happened, like I'd say you were shot, but I didn't go into any details because I was worried. You know, I didn't want him to give up. You know, I didn't want him to like yeah. feel like defeated. Um, so I waited until he asked me if he was paralyzed to tell him. So, and that was, that's probably a week into it since he was so in and out with all the medications. Um, at least several days to a week of him being in the ICU, everything kind of blurs together. But he did eventually ask me if he was paralyzed after noticing the doctors coming in and say, can you, yeah, can you feel, feel this? this? Can you feel this? Can you feel this? You know, and finally I think it like clicked in his head like, well, I can't feel anything, you know, so... Um, but I mean, the doctors and the nurses were awesome. They were so good to us. They were so good about explaining everything to us. The first day they took me into one of the conference rooms and pulled up a computer and showed me the x-rays of exactly where the bullet was and exactly what was going on. And like I said, since I had a medical background, I, I kind of follow. understood. And I, okay. so I was able to follow it pretty well. And, you know, and I, I knew at that point what we were probably looking at, but there was still a lot of question, you know, about 
where exactly his function would stop. You know, would he be able to eat? Would he be able to talk? Um, we didn't know if, you know, his vocal cords, yeah. if any of that was damaged, you know, you know, you just don't know until you get there. So we still were waiting, but. Mike, when you, when you learn from your wife and from the medical staff that you have been paralyzed, and then I'm assuming your follow-up question is like, to what degree, you know, how, how serious is this? Right. Um, you know, I don't remember a lot. Um, and like Sarah said, I, I remember kind of mouthing, am I paralyzed? But that was kind of the only thing I can really remember during that time. Um, I was so in and out of it right. that I don't really remember um, asking much other than, am I paralyzed? When you become even more aware as you farther proceed forward from that date and your memories are clear and the journey forward clear, how do you have the courage to take the next breath and to remain above water and to keep believing that that together we can do this? I think it was the support system I had. Um, that Every day Sarah was by my side holding my hand. Uh, my parents were there. Her her family was there. Uh, my family, my law enfor- law enforcement, but my, I mean, just so many people coming in and out wanting to see me. I just knew that, um, you know, in my mind, I knew that there's no way this is going to take me down. Mm-hmm. So many people have trust and faith in me that that I'm going to get through this. So I just, I knew I had to fight. I knew I had to make it. So. So for me, I, I, I spent the majority of my life kind of a victim to what happened to me. Having no clue what happened to me also happened to my, my, my caregivers, including my parents for, in my case. And then about 15 years ago, my mom and dad wrote a book about our experience, not just mine, but ours. And as I read it, I realized for the first time, this question is gonna be directed at Sarah, wait for it, of who the real heroes were in the story. Like there, yes, the bedside is a difficult place to find yourself and the trach is a difficult tool to have inserted into you and the feeding tube and everything else. But the real hero in my case, at least, was in my world, my mom and my dad and the nurses and the prayer warriors and my siblings and my grandparents in the community. So Sarah, real hero in the story in some regards, what kept you going during those long, dark, lonely nights? Um, you know, I- I mean, obviously a lot of prayer, like he said, the family and friends and the the support from law enforcement, um, we were never alone. Like there was never a time where we didn't have support. There was always someone there at rehab, even the staff there is so good and right. so caring. You know, it's, you know. We, there weren't any lonely nights. We were, we were always had people with us. And did that surprise you? Look, like, did you think you had the foundation that firm to ensure you'd have no lonely nights through a very lonely period? Um, you know, obviously our family, both of our families are amazing. I knew we, I mean, anything that would happen, our families would be supporting us, but the, um, you know, they talk about the thin blue line and the support from law enforcement. And until you're in a situation like this, you have no idea how strong that bond is. We had um, the St. Louis uh, police wives 
while he was at Mercy brought us meals, the whole family and all the law enforcement that was there visiting every day for weeks, for weeks. They brought us meals, drinks, coolers, like everything we needed. I got care package and care package for myself for, you know, you know, inspirational things to read, um, coloring books, like the adult coloring books, just so that I could like sit there and kind of be mindless for a few minutes and kind of, I mean, people thought of everything. There was our friends and our family and the law enforcement were just outstanding. They, it's, it's unbelievable to think when I pulled in the day he was shot, I couldn't get into the parking lot. There were so many police cars there that we couldn't get in. We had to tell them that I was the wife right. and they could like spread so that we could even get in. Like I've never seen more, every hallway there was lined with officers that we hadn't, that we didn't even know. Everybody, every municipality, troopers, right. everyone, you know, it's. So as you are grieving and scared and all the other emotions that are going on, I'm just curious, as you're going through this parade of blue, which is really a parade of love and support, how do you feel? What does that do for you? Um, it's comforting. I mean, it's it's comforting. And that's kind of where I wasn't alone. I knew I wasn't alone right. in this fight. You know, I knew he wasn't alone. We, It's very comforting knowing that that many people supported us. And then even as time went on, the community, I mean, mm-hmm. we we were going to fight through this no matter what we had to do. We had so many people backing us that it it's hard to have a bad day when there's so many <laughs> people. We go to the grocery store and we still get stopped by people. You know, it's the support has just been amazing. Well, I've had two coffee meetings early this morning. And when I shared with the guys who I was meeting with, who I was meeting with later on, both knew of you immediately. You know, it's been three years and yet... Um, the ripple effect of what you've been through and who you are today continues forward even into this day and beyond. Mike, you uh, they're not exactly sure what's gonna happen with you cognitively. Like, will he make a full recover uh, mentally? One of the very first questions I understand that you ask your lovely bride is, have you have you made the payment on my truck? That, that, <laughs> that's when we, we knew, man. Uh, you know, we don't know yet what's gonna happen physically, but we know his head remains intact, his mind remains right. sharp. Sarah, what, hearing that question, what, how, oh, I, what did that do for you? I laughed. I, I, there was nothing I could do. I laughed and I was like, of course I made your truck payment. <laughs> like, yes, honey, I, I took care of it. Like, you're fine. And that's, I just shook my head and I was like, you're such a mess. Like, right. But that's, you know, it was comforting though, because that's his personality, obviously. Like he's thinking about what day of the month it is and if his truck payment needs to be made. That answered my questions about his, where he was cognitively. Like that was that was his baseline. And I was like, well, there, there he is. There's Mike. He's back. <laughs> Welcome back, Mike. So in my own world, my, my, the, day, the day I lost my fingers to amputation, my mother said it was the loneliest, longest night in, in her journey. She remembers just walking the blackened hospital halls like mourning. Not really only what happened to me, but what was happening to us. And she ultimately came to this truth. Like she had to redefine what perfection meant, which is a really important thing for all of us to do in every place of life. Like redefining what perfection meant. At some point along your journey through Mercy, then eventually out to Denver, spending time at Craig and the months of recovery, 
you started to recognize, I may not stand up anytime soon. I may not get back into my patrol car anytime soon. Like my life is going to be radically different. And now, deep breath out, I need to redefine what, so what does life look like? Was there a turning point for you that allowed you to redefine what perfection might might mean? Um, you know, I don't know that there was necessarily one certain one certain turning point, but I knew that um, as we went through the therapeutic, Craig, I knew obviously uh, what my life was going to be like as I went forward. And. <laughs> Right now, Siri, for those of you trying to tune in, Siri is just jumping over this conversation. Uh, again, stealing the thunder, Siri, so stay out of this. Go ahead, Mike. Sorry for that. Um, <laughs> you know, I knew what what my life was going to be like and that um, we were just going to have to find this new normal that we were going to have to live by. And when I think when we realized how we were going to be, that was just, you know, maybe – a couple months into being at Craig, we knew that um, things were going to be different. And that's when we just started working towards how we were going to do things from now on. You know, there's there's a medical side to all of this, of course, that will affect some of our listeners and some of our viewers incredibly. But I think the emotional and relational side is one that affects all of us intimately. All of us will weather our anniversaries, those dates that change everything afterwards. So I'd, I'd like to focus on how this thing not only changed you as a couple, but how you chose to come together as a couple and moving forward through through the worst, through the struggle. So these, these recognizations come where our life is going to be different. How do you hold hands again and say, yes, and we're, we're gonna tackle this and, and, and figure it out together? How do you do that, Sarah? No, it never dawned on me not to. <laughs> like I... I mean, from the time he was shot through, it never crossed my mind to leave and not deal with the situation. It was, I mean, we'd only been married two years. This was this was our new life. We had right. a lot of living left to do, and we didn't have time to sit back and, you know, not, not deal with the issues we needed to deal with. It you know, I've talked to some of the other um, wives I know that are caretakers, and it's it's funny how everybody's relationship is a little bit different. But myself and a few of the wives that I talked to felt the same. You know, it never leaving or not dealing with it never even entered our minds as a an option. That was this, this is our story. This mm. is, this injury, you know, obviously happened to him, but it happened to both of us and our lives were going to be molded around that and move forward with right. it. Mike, for me, I always wondered if some girl would, would find beauty in me and a girl found beauty in you before you were shot, but then life changed radically for you. And I'm curious, some night, some dark night out of Craig hospital, was there a moment when you said, "My, you know, will she even show up tomorrow?" It never crossed my mind that she wouldn't be there. Um, just Sarah's personality and the way she is, she's so strongly driven that I knew just that the love that we had between us that I knew she was going to be there every morning. Um, I just, for me, and this may sound a little bit weird. 
I felt bad for her because she had to deal with this now. Right. Um, we had so many plans for our future before we got hurt that we had talked about. Um, and, I mean, we were, when I got shot, they had just dug the foundation on a house we were going to build uh, maybe a few days before or a week before. So uh, there were so many plans we had, and I just felt absolutely horrible that um, she now was going to have to deal with this. So, But there was was never a thought in my mind that she wasn't going to be there in the morning. What an example. Truly, I mean, to, to all of us, to, as we weather the storms of life, both the, the crisis storms and the monotony, just the stuff that bores us back to sleep and toward separation, like that we all go through this stuff and for you to be unified through this is, is unbelievable and inspiring. And you're not alone. You've talked about some of the nurses, you talked about that team, you talked about that parade of police officers lining the hallways, lining the street. And then you start getting support <laughs> a new foundation of your life is, uh, is about to be poured for you. Talk about Gary Sinise and how they learned first about your story. So Jim Schubert of Schubert Design uh, lives locally and his wife was at work and they had heard they were on lockdown when Mike was shot because the guy ran and they were in the area, in the general area. Um, and so as soon as Jim heard the story, he came he went to the police department and they probably, he's, he laughs cause he's like, they probably thought I was some crazy person. <laughs> he's like, I'm here. I'm from the Sinise foundation. He's like, and we're going to build them a house. I need to meet them, right. <laughs> you know? And right. that was before, I mean, really he has to have the foundation's permission to do all of that, you know, but he was so worked up about it that it happened, you know, in his hometown and where he lived that, he was determined to make it happen for us. And and he did, and he was a godsend. He did so much for us. And then getting to meet Gary Sinise and just his foundation, it's amazing. He's, he's such a great guy. He's so easy to talk to. You know, you see someone on TV and you kind of expect that when you meet them in person it to be awkward, mm-hmm. you know, and, and sort of silence unless you're like doing an official interview. And he was very warm and just made us very comfortable and was very easy to talk to. It's his foundation is helping so many people and we were blessed to become part of that family. It was beyond anything we could have ever thought would happen for us. So we've had Gary Sinise on the podcast and I thought when we booked him, we just got Lieutenant Dan. Like, I'm like, yes, baby, we got Lieutenant Dan on the air. (laughs) And then you hear about where his heart is. And as beautiful as Forrest Gump was as a movie or the other work he does professionally, his heart is fully, fully behind the veterans, Gold Star families, our first responders, and of course you, Mike. The, uh, The foundation eventually gets poured on this home. Take me through the day where you pull up and uh, that big flag that covers this new home is going to be pulled back, and you're going to see where you're going to be living now as a couple. Mike, what, what is that like for you? It was incredible um, for me for the longest time. I couldn't figure out why these people I didn't know wanted to build me a house. Um, but that day that they were going to turn the house over to us, I just remember thinking how lucky we were and how blessed we were that they stepped in to help us because 
the um, the renovations I was gonna need for the house for me to get around was gonna be something um, incredible because the the doorways are so small, the hallways are so small in the normal houses, but they stepped in and built this house for us that uh, gave gave Sarah a little bit of a break. Um, you know, the house that I'm able to to run partially by myself, I can uh, change channels and open and close the blinds. I can open and close doors. I mean, it's just incredible. And I was so happy that um, not only that they stepped in, but that Sarah was going to get a little bit of a break. And she wasn't going to hear me say, uh, hey, babe, can you do me a favor? Can you change the channel? Right. You know, so it, it was just incredible and it made me realize how blessed we were. Sarah, we'll come back to the home in a moment, but you're bringing up, Mike, I think something that's kind of been unsaid to this point. The injuries from that bullet from that day have radically changed your life physically. How is your life different today physically? What are you able to do and what, are, what aren't you able to do? Um, physically, I'm not able to do very much. Um, you know, I, I can use um, my computer. I have a setup on my computer. I can I can wheel up to my computer and use it and mess around. But a majority of things I have to have Sarah or somebody help me with. You know, um, things as as simple as eating or or if you have an itch on your face or if um, you just the simplest things that you take for granted. Now I have to. I have to have somebody, somebody help me with. So the my understanding that gets the collarbone down. Yeah, it's just right below the collarbone. Okay. Um, I have a little bit of movement in my shoulders, but um, from there down, I have no movement at all. And for those listening, just to be v- very clear, that means no movement at all with your hands, with your fingers. Correct. So their question in mind is, then how do you roll up the, the wheelchair toward the computer? How do you even do that? Well, I use. I have a. Um, a sip and puff chair that runs off of the amount of pressure I put in it. So that's, uh, I'm, for me to move, I, I put pressure in a tube and that's what, that's what, uh, gets me around the house. And that's what helps me do the things that I am able to do. For you, what's the hardest part of this physically? Uh, physically the, the hardest part is, You know, I I get a lot of nerve pain and stuff, I would say. Physically, that's probably the hardest part of my injury, but it bothers me more that I have to have Sarah do so much for me. That was my next question. So emotionally, what, what seems to yeah. be the biggest weight? That it's it's putting all the pressure on Sarah. Um, you know, she, she takes care of me. Uh, we have a puppy that she helps take care of. She has to make, you know, she runs the house. She has to... Pay all the bills. The puppy every, runs the house. The puppy, <laughs> at this point, the puppy absolutely runs the house. It's uh, we have a very large puppy. He's a Newfoundland. Oh jeez. So he's uh, he just turned one on Saturday, but he's about 125 pounds. So he's he's a big puppy. But does your big puppy know that dad is a little different? Does he seem to tenderize and slow he, down around you? He absolutely does. He is incredible. Um, you know things. So if I'm uh, out in the backyard and I go off the patio to go out in the yard, 
the first thing he does is run over to make sure I'm okay because he realizes something isn't right that I'm doing, something I wouldn't normally do, and it's incredible the reaction that I get from him when something um, isn't normal the way he comes to check on me. Right. Sarah, for you, you, uh, you married a police officer, a fit guy, on top of his game in every capacity that you can measure, and things have changed. Yeah, things things definitely have changed, um, but our, our relationship hasn't changed. You know, we both talked at the beginning. What attracted us to each other was personality and sense of humor, and that's still here. That's that's not gone. That was the big thing for both of us that we got along so well and made each other laugh. And it's. Physically, obviously, things are very different. Um, are you know taking on the role his as his caregiver as well as his wife, but it's. I mean, we still have a good time. Mm-hmm. We still laugh. We still joke around with each other. We still, we still have a good time. Absolutely. So life remains full of joy. Yes. Not ease, but joy. Yes. So for you, Sarah, what would have been? the biggest changes emotionally? Um, gosh, I don't know. I think that's a tough one for me. I think just watching him struggle, I think is probably my toughest thing emotionally is knowing that how much he wants to do for himself and how much it bothers him right. to not be able to do it. I think his struggle is probably what what bothers, bothers me emotionally the do, most. Do you have hope that, you know what, John, I think we are making strides and I think there is a possibility down the road and we don't know when, but we believe that uh, I will hold my husband again upright and we will dance again together on the floor. Do, do you have that hope? Absolutely. Um, the way technology is going and the way they are working with everything, um, they're always finding new cures for for the injuries that, um, you know, someday soon, maybe they will find a way to reattach the spinal cord and uh, take away the trauma that was caused to it. Right. And maybe it will eventually one day make me aware I can stand up and have that dance with my wife again. When that happens, I call, uh, I call being in the room. I'll let you have the first dance at the Gary Sinise house. I think that's appropriate. But as soon as you open up the front door and let the rest of us in, uh, I look forward to celebrating with you. I believe that day is coming. And when that day comes, I'm going to pick her up and carry her through that that threshold of that house. She has earned it, man. You are a, a bit of a guy who stays to himself traditionally. And yet this story that began on July 8th has pivoted that. And now you are in the limelight. Like it or not, you are in our, our collective consciousness something that you finally have embraced. Why do you say yes to interviews and and to speaking events and to public events? For me, I think it's letting people know that just because you're hurt, you can still get out there and do things. Uh, You know, there is, there's a lot of people that Sarah and I have talked to that um, are in the same situation as me that have now become just, homebodies they stay at home they don't do anything sarah and i we still get out we travel we go to we just got back from florida a few (laughs) weeks ago you know i mean it's just because you're hurt 
there's always a way around it to still be able to go do things. And I think that's why I enjoy doing the interviews. I want people to know your life's not over. It just changed a little bit. This from a man who's in a 600 pound wheelchair on a breathing trach, whose life has changed more than a little bit. And yet his cheeks are rosy red, not only because of joy, but because of the Floridian sun. Sarah, for you too, your life has changed a little bit. Why, why do you say yes to the speaking opportunities in the podcast and the interviews? Um, same as him, definitely because we want to make sure people know that it's it's possible. It's still possible to get out and do things. Um, there's ways to work around everything. You know, things that seem like traveling seems like it would be next to impossible. We make it work. <laughs> You've got to, you know, it takes a little planning for sure, but it's, it can happen. And, you know, and the other thing that I had mentioned um, earlier today is the support that we've gotten from everyone. I, I feel like we owe it to them to do some of these interviews, to make sure they know how thankful we are and to keep them up to date with how we're doing. Um, and it's all because of them. It's all because of the support of all of these people and all these foundations. It's they definitely made our lives easier and just making sure that they know how thankful we are for everything they've done. We hear the term backstoppers a lot. And I think for the most part, few of us really know what that is, who they are or what they do. And now you've become intimately familiar with them. So for our listeners right now, and for the guy asking the question, talk about backstoppers. Who are they? What do they do? And why does it matter? Backstoppers is an organization that um, I will always hold near and dear to my heart. They, um, they're an organization that steps in with first responders that um, have either had a death, death in the line of duty or a catastrophic injury, and they step in and help monetarily. So that way, um, you know, like for me, like we talked about earlier, I was laying in bed and I was worried about my truck payment. You don't know what's going to happen from there on out. You don't know if you're going to be able to afford to make the house payment, if you're going to be able to afford to keep taking the the kids to the, if they're in private school, if you can still pay for them to go to the private school. If you can, you know, make the car payment, if you need a new right. car, whatever, they step in and they help monetarily and in so many other ways they take care of the first responder community and they're absolutely incredible they are incredible when you look at what happened almost three years ago now what's the best thing that came out of it i think most of the time when we look back at our dates the divorce the bankruptcy the cancer the death the suicide the bullet the upside down moment we see primarily darkness. And yet I look at your faces today, I hear your voices today and I see primarily light. So looking back at your three years since that day, that changed everything, what, what good came out of it? And I'd like to ask that of both of you, beginning with Sarah. I think that for me, looking at the situation, um, we were moving into a pretty dark time for law enforcement. And I think that a lot of officers were feeling not appreciated. And I think that after this happened and the community showed such great support for Mike after being injured, I think that it kind of gave 
you know, all the officers kind of a breath of fresh air. I think they were like, okay, they do love us. You know, they do appreciate us. I think, you know, I, I think it, it just kind of gave them appreciation and it and it made the communities more aware mm-hmm. of their police officers. And, you know, every municipality around us were telling us that their break rooms were so full of food and drinks that they were all like putting on weight because they were getting pizzas and donuts and cookies and stuff, you know? So I think, I think for me, just kind of looking at the situation as a whole, I think it really helped law enforcement see that they were appreciated. Wow. Thank you. And so true. Mike. I think for me, one of the, um, the best things that came out of it and, uh, I don't mean for this to be kind of a selfish answer, but it pushed me to see how strong I mentally was to deal with this, with the injury I got um, from the from the injury. It just it made me realize that I can still go on. Right. So I think I think that was the best thing that came out of it for me. Thank you. You know, many folks who go through their own storms whether that's an accident, a gunshot, a loss, whatever it may be, wonder how in the world they're gonna take the next step forward and should they? You know, one and a half million individuals attempted suicide last year in our country alone, not to mention Canada and Mexico and the UK and beyond. So it's it's at a crisis level that people feel hopelessness. Just as we get ready to move into the Live Inspired 7, speak to the individuals out there right now who are at the end of the rope wondering, I don't have enough to take the next step forward. I don't have enough strength. I don't have enough fortitude. I don't have enough faith. What would you say to those individuals right now at the end of their their, their rope? There's always somebody to talk to and there's always another step to take. It might not be the step you wanna take, but there's always another step and there's always someone there. Um, you know, I tell so many people I know, even if you want to just come talk to me or just, if you want to just sit in the room and hang out, there's all, you know, I am definitely always there for somebody if they want to talk. Um, so just for people to keep that in mind, there's people that will listen and will help you take that next step. Thank you, Mike. Sarah? I think the big thing is, as alone as they feel, they're not alone. You know, there are people that care, um, whether it's family, friends, coworkers, you know, there's, there's always someone that, you know, that care. There's, Mm -hmm. there's, they're not alone as much as they feel that way. And in their darkest hour, if they're feeling, you know, that aloneness, God is always there. That is, you know, prayer can do so much to comfort, I think, that, I mean, that is one big thing. And and we're always praying for those people, you know, even if I don't know them, I know people are struggling. You know, we always want to think of the people that are going through hard times. We know what hard times feel like, you know, and everybody's everybody has a situation, everyone's going through something and it's, it's important. And it's there. Yeah. Just that they're not alone, I think is the big thing. They're never alone. 
I think it's an important memory for all of us to recall that we are not alone, that there is someone, including Mike. He'll drop the address in later on, but you're going to have people coming by all the time now, Mike. Be careful what you wish for. I I, want to make sure that our listeners realize we're going to have a link on our show notes to Backstoppers. So I encourage you ladies and you gentlemen tuning in right now to cruise on over to johnallearyinspires.com. Go to the show notes for this podcast. Check out the, sh- the, the links there. Go to Backstoppers. Be generous. There are people who put their lives on the line every single day for you, for you. And you may never know their names, but that doesn't mean they don't know yours and they're not trying their very best to serve you. So I, I wanna make sure we re- recognize their efforts, including the uh, efforts of Officer Mike and Sarah Flamian. We have seven questions that tie all of our guests together. So I'm gonna invite you all to answer these seven questions. I'll, I'll kind of go back and forth between Sarah and Mike, Sarah and Mike all the way through. But the very first question, Sarah, what is the best book you've ever read? Oh, goodness. That's a hard one. Um, I think recently since Mike's injury, I read Why Forgive. And that's so... Steve McDonald was a patient at Craig where we went and uh, the phlebotomist actually gave us a copy of that book because he thought we should read it. Um, and it, it opens your eyes definitely. And, and, you know, for us, I think it, you know, I discussed a lot of what I read in the book with Mike and, you know, why it's important to forgive. And I think that's why we've been able to, not dwell on what happened that day and the trial Mm. and the guy. I think that's, you know, helped us move forward. You know, there's so much there that I've been purposefully ignoring it because to bring up that guy and that date and the man and that finger that pulled the trigger and the name that you know and the image that you have, I hope someday to bring you back or to join you at your house and to talk for an hour on our podcast, just about forgiveness. Forgiving the life that was taken from you, the person that did it, one another for mistakes made, not leaving that morning to go on that vacation. All the things that you look back on and say, dang, had we only done this. So there's, there's so much there and I, I'm excited if you'll have me to join you at some later, later, later date where we get to really unpack together forgiveness. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. That'd be a lot of fun to talk about. Well, there's, there's a lot there for all of us. Mike, what is one positive characteristic, one trait that you possessed as a little child that you wish you still exhibited as brilliantly today? Man, I have no idea. I really, that, that stumped me there. What do you think, Sarah? <laughs> you, you know the man next to you. What's the, what's the one thing that he did even more frequently as a kid that you think, gosh, I think he ought to return to this in his own in his own space today. Can you help me out with this? That's right. He called a friend. Phone a friend. Kids in general, faith and trust is comes so easy. And I think that as much as he does a very good job with that now, it also working in something like law enforcement, yeah. you're a little bit more skeptical, I guess. That's... You're absolutely right. I, um, as a kid, it was easy to hold somebody close to you. When you get in law enforcement, it's it's sometimes hard for somebody to break that barrier yeah. and become close to you. Um, you constantly kind of 
seem to maybe analyze them and see what what's going on with them. So uh, I think Sarah had a good one there with that. You got a good one too, Mike. Great answers, plural. If your home caught fire and all living things are out, you two are out, your dogs are out, and you have an opportunity to grab one item that really matters to you, what's the one thing that you would go in and grab? And this one's for Sarah. I, you know, I don't, I don't know. I'm trying to think of some of the stuff that I have in there. I am less attached to physical things. I emotionally don't attach to physical things as much as he <laughs> does, honestly. Um, then how about we pivot? You call a friend. Mike, if you could have Sarah run in and grab one item for you, what's the one possession that you want her coming outside with? I think for me, um, it would kind of be an either or. I would want you to grab the um, our engagement picture off the mm-hmm. wall That's a good one. or the cross we bought on vacation that we both absolutely just love that we've never seen anything like it. Would you mind taking a picture of that cross and letting us post that along with the show yeah, notes absolutely. next to the backstopper link so people can see yeah. what Sarah just came out of that house <laughs> with? <laughs> we'll leave the engagement picture there. You're coming right. out with a cross now. We want, we want to see a picture of it. <laughs> Mike, if you could sit on a bench back in Florida on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anybody living or dead, who would you want to be seated next to you? There's so many people I'm trying to narrow it down. Anybody that was in the military overseas that had passed away, just because I would want to thank them and tell them how much. I just absolutely appreciate what they've done for us. Um, I know a lot of people probably think more along the lines of celebrity or something along that, but I just, just a, a random person from the from the military, I'd like to thank for what they did. Thank you. Sarah, what's the best advice you've ever received? Oh, I received a a lot of good advice from people. Um, I think my my cousin Shelly, I think just before Mike and I were married, she was, her and I have always been very close. And she always told me, um, you know, marriage isn't easy you know, and gave me a lot of relationship and marriage advice. And I think that she really kind of got me ready for marriage. You know, she talked about how important communication was Mm -hmm. and, you know, made sure that I knew that it's not a fairy tale. It's not, you know, life is hard. You know, there's always going to be things going on, whether it's money or anything like that. And communication and loving each other should take care of all of that, you know, all of those things. And just kind of explaining to me what a real relationship and real love is. I think she, she gave me a lot of advice on being ready for that. There's a lot of advice to give around that (laughs) and a lot that we should receive from (laughs) folks like this. Mike, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? Have fun. 
just <laughs> enjoy life because um, things change. Um, I I would just have to say have fun and enjoy life. You know, it's uh, you never know about tomorrow. Amen. So now to both of you, the final question. It has been said that all great people and couples and survivors and leaders and servants and examples can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read, Miss Sarah Flamian? I guess they kept pushing forward. You know, I think that regardless of what comes up in life, I think it's important to just keep pushing. And I want people to see that that's what we've done. You know, we didn't let the situation stop us from living our lives. They kept pushing forward, certainly have. Mike, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How does your one sentence read? I would have to say, look at us now, we're still having fun. (laughs) (laughs) Look at us now, we're still having fun. That's it. In the midst of the storm, we choose to dance. And my friends, I'm telling you right now, less than three years into a pivotal moment in their lives, if this couple can look at each other with the love that I see seated across from me and the joy I see seated across from me, it's an example, not only to me, but to every one of you listening right now, that there remains an awful lot of reason for joy in your own life today. So uh, get a little bit more playful. Your life matters. The best is yet to come, but enjoy this moment because it is changing on us. It is changing. Sarah, I wanna thank you for being such an example. Mike, I wanna thank you for being who you are. I wanna thank you both for being the humble servants that brought you into the profession that you chose and that allow you to remain above the rising waters. You, you, you are heroes of ours. You're certainly a hero of mine and I appreciate your work. So my friends, that is Sarah Flamian. This is Officer Mike Flamian. I am John O'Leary, and this is your day. Live inspired. Okay, guys, I know what you're thinking. John, we get it, man, we get it. Rate and review the podcast. But my friends, listen, It really does help other people find our show, which allows us to grow our Live Inspired community. Don't you want to help other people feel fired up about their lives just the way that you feel fired up about yours? So please go right now to Apple Podcast or anywhere that you listen to your show and give us a five-star rating and then go ahead and share what you enjoy most about the Live Inspired podcast together. We can make a difference.